Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us on the cross. We thank you for the work that you finished, the work that we can depend on for our salvation. Father, we pray that as we look at this work today, that you will help us to have a better understanding of just what it is that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we looked at the foundation of the argument that he was starting in Hebrews chapter 7, where Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we looked at Melchizedek as a picture of Christ, a type of Christ. And this truth is very important that we understand Jesus as a new high priest of a different kind because it's crucial to the argument that is set forth in Hebrews chapter 7 verses 11 through the end of the chapter. In Hebrews 7:11 it says, now if the perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? So the question is basically this. If priests after the order of Aaron were enough, why would there be a need for another one? This is a rhetorical question. And the obvious answer to that rhetorical question is that there is a need. And there is a need because the old covenant is not enough. Okay, that wasn't enough either, but that happens, right? (laughs) Okay, praise the Lord. Okay, the covenant was actually established in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. That's six chapters, and I'm not going to read all six chapters. But I did want to look at two crucial verses in in this section um, that explain basically what happened when the covenant... Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, says this. Then Moses came and he recounted recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Now you'll notice here in the establishment of the covenant, the people said, we will do what God has told us. And then between 1920, between, um, as, as we see, between chapters 1923, God had a lot to say. But 
we're going to condense it down to this basic, simple statement. God set the law for Israel to follow. If they obeyed, God would bless them. If they disobeyed, God would punish them. It's as simple as that. And then as we read Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, we see that the sacrifices were performed and the covenant was sealed by the blood of these sacrifices. Exodus 24, 8 says, So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made to you in accordance with all these words. The key to understanding the problem with this covenant is that it depended on their ability to fulfill the law on every point without exception. The obvious problem is fulfilling the law on every point is impossible. So under the law, it is impossible to please God. This is why there was a need for a new covenant. This covenant needed to be between God and someone who could fulfill the law in every point without exception. The first thing we see here is that the law, or the old covenant, was between God and fallen man. This covenant was impossible for us to fulfill because man is incapable of living a perfect life. You might ask about me. Uh, You might ask, what about me? I'm not descended from Israel. I was never a part of this covenant. Even today, popular culture looks at the good deeds and bad deeds as a key to heaven. Some even say, if I follow the law, this will somehow get me into heaven. Others say that it is like a scale. If my good deeds on one side outweigh my bad deeds on the other side, then somehow I will get to heaven. Nothing can be further from the truth. Paul said this about those who do not have the law in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Starting with verse 14, he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Again, we see the law is not going to help those who do not have the law because their conscience, which tells them right from wrong, when they ignore that conscience and do what they know is wrong, they're guilty. 
And again, all of this is based on the absolute standard of perfection. So far we've looked at, if you will, the letter of the law. Things that we do, how we follow, the rules. What about the spirit of the law? What about motivations? Jesus had something to say about this in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. In verse 34 it starts out, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus was pointing out that the deeds of the law, which the Pharisees held so dear, were not just rules to follow. These deeds were supposed to be a fruit of a genuine love for the Father. The law was there to show them what this love was supposed to look like. As a matter of fact, one of the commandments says, if you see your enemy's ox in the ditch, you are supposed to help it out of the ditch and restore it to your enemy. Now that doesn't sound like something that would be the normal thing for a person to do. As a matter of fact, I've heard people say, you know, in, in um, response to the do unto others as you would have them do unto you, they've twisted it and said do unto others before they do it to you. And that's really the way people think sometimes. But here we see that the law is showing us that we are supposed to live to a higher standard. And it's from our motives as well, from love. Psalm 119 says, said this, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. This is the heart of a man who loved God. The heart of a man who said, I have sought you. Help me not to wander away. So, if I could just seek after God hard enough, I can get to heaven, right? Um, Isaiah 53 says this. Showing us just how badly we have failed. Isaiah 53 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Paul said the same thing in Romans 3, 10 to 12, where it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So what we have in this covenant of the law is a very deep hole that we could never hope to climb out of. That's the old covenant. That's why there was a need for a new covenant. In Hebrews 7, 12 to 25, he then goes on to further describe this need for a new covenant and, and, how, and how it works. It says here in 7, 12 to 25, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes a place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Judah is the tribe that the king was supposed to come from. As a matter of fact, we will notice that if we look at Jesus in the scriptures, he is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. He is all three. And remember, the work of a prophet is to represent God to the people. The work of the priest is to represent the people to God. And the work of the king is to rule the people in righteousness. It was evident our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And as this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. The fact that Jesus lives eternally makes it so that he can be the one priest. As it says in verse 17, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> verse 18 continues, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. Again, that's the law. It's weak. It's useless. It cannot save us. And then verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it is not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also, Jesus has become a guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand because he continues forever, 
holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's one of the keys, is that his indestructible life leads to our eternal life. It's... As I was reflecting during communion, I was, I was thinking about this, that Jesus, when he held up the wine, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. And that's what we celebrated today. My blood of the new covenant. It was his blood that sealed this covenant. And when we celebrate communion, that is what we're celebrating. We're celebrating this new covenant that he has established. John chapter 17 is often referred to as Christ's high priestly prayer. This is because it is a prayer where he intercedes for his disciples and he includes all those who believe in him through his word. In other words, this prayer is for us as well as his disciples. This prayer shows us that the new covenant is between God the Father and the Son of Man, Jesus himself. Now before I read this, I want you to understand, Jesus is not reminding God of what this covenant was. He's stating the terms of the covenant in the beginning verses, verses 1 through 5. He's stating these terms so that they will be in the scripture, so that we will see what's going on. And he says this in, G- in John 17, 1-5, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may have eternal life. Notice, My eternal life is based on the fact that the Father gave me to the Son. This eternal life, that they may know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me. Again, he finished the work. What was that work that was given? to live that perfect life that no one could live. He wasn't just here with a message. He was here with a life lived perfectly. I'm going to go back to start verse 4 again. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now the Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Boy, I'll tell you, there's a whole lot in that passage. Jesus is saying he existed before the world began, right here in this passage. And he's saying that this covenant is an eternal covenant. And it was sealed with his blood on the cross. Jesus is the only person who could keep the law and 
fulfill the Father's requirement for a righteous life. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus said this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. This is the purpose he came, to live that perfect life. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. There is a very important word which describes what happens as a result of this covenant. This word is impute. It's a theological word. It means to ascribe or to attach. In this case, when Jesus died on the cross, my sins were imputed to him. God literally took my sins and put them on Jesus. And God punished my sins in Jesus. See, this imputation, this aspect of God imputing is a two-way street. God imputed my sin on Jesus. And then God imputes his righteousness to me when I believe in Christ by faith. So there's a two-way thing going on here. When I trust in Christ, God imputes Christ's righteousness onto me. And my sins are imputed onto him. My sins have been dealt with because Jesus lived the righteous life. But the point of the matter is, I could do nothing. There's nothing I can do to make it so that I can get to heaven. Absolutely nothing. It is all his work. So I benefit from this new covenant. See, the covenant again has nothing to do. It's not with me. It's not between me and God. It is between the Father and the Son. I benefit from this covenant on the basis of the fact that God imputes my sin to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is also imputed to me. That's how I benefit from this covenant. That's the only way I can be declared righteous. That's the new covenant. Not between me and God, but between God the Father and God the Son. Does this mean I can just receive this wonderful gift? and continue my life as if nothing has changed? Ouch, that's a big question. And a lot of people think that's the case. Jesus did not give me his robe of righteousness to cover my sin. See, it's not this garment. I mean, we talk about his garment of righteousness and all that, and that is very true. He also did a whole lot more. He sealed my salvation with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he put his righteous nature inside of me. For anyone who trusts in Christ, 
It's not just that he imputes his righteousness onto me as a covering for the sins I have committed and the sins I commit. But he has put a righteous nature inside of me. So his righteousness is not just covering me. It is also working in me. It's working his righteousness in my body. And if that's the case, my life must show a radical change from what it once was. If it doesn't, it begs the question, did I truly receive God's righteousness? So his righteousness in me works out an ability to live a righteous life. This righteous life would be impossible otherwise. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28 says this, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people? Because he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. See how Hebrews 7.26 describes Jesus as our high priest? First, holy. And if you're in Sunday school, we, we talked about the holiness of Jesus, how he is different, how he is apart, how he is so much different, he makes people uncomfortable in his presence. He is innocent, he never sinned. He is undefiled. Sin has never touched him. Separated from sinners, even though he ate with sinners and walked with sinners and healed sinners and died for sinners, he was never a sinner. Exalted above the heavens. When Jesus came, he lived among sinners. When he finished his work, he sat at his Father's right hand, where he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 27 says, He does not need to offer a sacrifice for himself, because unlike the priests of old, he never sinned. Verse 28 closes this great chapter with, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And the word perfect in 28 actually means to execute fully, or in Christ's last words on the cross, it is finished. When he died on the cross and said, it is finished, that work was completed. Nothing more to add to it. He doesn't have to go back and fix anything. The work is done. Our salvation is complete. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for completing this great work of salvation for us. We thank you that this covenant doesn't depend on our ability to perform, but on your capable and full life, which was lived out in perfect righteousness, and that you give that righteousness to us. We pray that you'll help us to understand more fully just what that means, that it is not a license, but it is something that should be both a hope and an encouragement for us to change our lives and walk in the way that you would have us. In Jesus' name, amen.